1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of beyond the to-do list i am your host eric fisher and this is the show where i talk to the people behind the productivity this week i'm excited to share with you a conversation with valerie friedland she's the author of the new book like literally dude arguing for the good in bad english and this is a word nerd podcast at this point this episode is all about words how we use them to communicate how words change over time the history behind how they originated versus the different pivot points that they became accepted and changed and morphed and how we can just not get so hung up on our pet peeves when it comes to language in the right ways In this conversation, we talk all about what's in her new book. We talk about the ums and the uhs. We talk about likes and literally and especially dude. And I think you're going to find this conversation fascinating if you're a word nerd at all or just really like to write or read and especially communicate. So I'll get out of the way and just say enjoy this conversation with Valerie Friedland. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Valerie Friedland. Valerie, welcome to Beyond the To-Do List.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: I actually don't know what we're going to do here. This is going to be very fun and interesting because you're here. You've got a brand new book out called Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. And a lot of people are like, what? What is this? (laughs) And my thing is, is that I am a word nerd. And you probably have been called that before, too, I am assuming. Why this book and why now? What brought you to the catalyst of, no, I have to write about this and I've got to dive deeper into this and explain this bad English being good?
0: (laughs) It's a great question because I think, you know, a lot of people have very strong reactions to all of the words I talk about and all of the processes I talk about. And it was really because of those reactions when I was giving talks I would give my talk and talk about my research. I'm a linguist, so I do, you know, experimental linguistics research, mainly with speech sounds. And I would talk to people about what I'd found in these processes that operate in language all the time. And then it never failed that at the end of my talk, hands would go up and it would not be about this brilliant talk I just gave, which, you know, (laughs) would have been fascinating too. But it was about the speech features that they noticed that bothered them. And they wanted to understand why they came into being. And so everything in my book is something that someone has brought up to me over and over and over again. And it seemed to be really important to people. People get very upset about language. They have really strong feelings about language. And the things I'm writing about in this book are the things today that we're mad about. But the book takes a long view and talks about why we get so angry about speech and where it stems from and how languages change over time. So you could insert any speech feature into these chapters in place of the ones like Like and Literally, Non-Literally and Dude and just understand that the same forces have brought us all the new things in our speech over time. And obviously, we don't speak Old English today, so it's been pretty drastic. And I think why now is because we are so connected now. Unlike 20, 30 years ago, even with the Internet, with social media, with sort of the way things go viral, language travels fast. New language travels fast and it goes larger and broader than it did before. So things that might have bothered us on a local level before now bother us on a national or global level. And these features are ones talked about everywhere. So I think that's why I thought this was the right time for this book.
1: Yeah, it almost feels like there's been an acceleration of much like technology. There was a certain pace to it that was kind of steady. Occasionally there were breakthroughs that would speed things up and, you know, leapfrog things ahead. And I think with the fact that we've all got a device in our pockets where we're constantly using language to send and receive on a bigger and faster scale, right? than has ever been possible before. Like it's send and receive instantaneous communication through not just language, but through video and all that. Although that uses language too. I'm thinking primarily of texting and email and tweeting and you know social media, all these different things that those have really accelerated. I'm not that old but I feel like I've gotten older faster than maybe other generations did during the same like decade or two since college. I used to be cool. I used to know the, the <laughs> new words and all that kind of stuff. And, and there's words now that even my kids use that I'm like, that wasn't even a thing a few years ago.
0: Absolutely. You know, I think what is critical is that we recognize types of change being somewhat different definitely what goes viral today and spreads like wildfire and is rapidly evolving is vocabulary and i think what we don't realize most vocabulary words that go viral are pretty short-lived and they don't have the they're fairly superficial they don't have the depth of things that are more significant in changing our language over time and while we feel like language has changed so fast in the last few decades because vocabulary turns over so rapidly Bigger, more systemic, more important change to our language has actually slowed down. And if you compare the period of Middle English to the contemporary period, we are really slow. We're the turtle in that race. The bunny is already past. So we have gone from an incredibly morphosyntactically complex language with tons of endings and sort of totally different organization to One with very fixed word order, where subjects go first, verbs come second, objects go after, which wasn't really the case necessarily in Old English, and hardly any ending. So the big changes are long since done, and we are funny that we get so upset over little changes today. But yes, the ones we notice are vocabulary, and those seem to be very rapidly evolving today.
1: Well, and obviously one of the reasons, I mean, again, there's multiple reasons, but one of the reasons that I thought this is a great conversation to have with you and this is a great book is the fact that, one, I'm a word nerd, like I claimed earlier, and I'm very interested in where a certain word starts and gets brought into things and, you know, what's the root of that and how did it start and where did it first get used and all of that. But on top of that, just knowing that so much of productivity has to do with communication. And if we get stuck on some of these changes, these linguistic changes, if we have them as pet peeves or, you know, hang ups and speed bumps in our communication, that is not productive.
0: Absolutely. And I think what we do is we tend to put the burden on the speaker that we don't like their features which is a lot like telling someone, you know, your name's bad, change it. It's, you know, it's really a matter of who you are. So Language is incredibly social and it's formed through our social experience and how we encode the world. And yes, it's also collective and communal. So we agree upon meanings over time and that's what makes meaning across our language. But... That said, language has changed. Meanings have changed. And we do it through these incremental steps we take as speakers when we start using something in a new case. So, for example, I might be an adult and I might not have ever been adulting, but my daughter, who's a teenager, always tells me how much adulting sucks. So she is taking a word and extending its meaning where it's not just this noun that stood for this person of a certain age that, you know, has to act like a responsible human. Now it means sort of all those things I put on what it is to be an adult in this culture, right? So it's taken on this really interesting new nuanced meaning, and it's also shifted from being a noun to a verb. And what we don't realize is this is how language change proceeds. It expands because we have needs that we need to fulfill, and it's very powerful in that way. But when we dismiss people because of the way they're saying something different than the way we're saying it, we are actually missing the big picture, and we're missing the message. And language has always changed. If we're going to get hung up on it, it's really going to hold us back from embracing the connection that we can have with different types of speakers.
1: Yeah. What are some? I mean, you just mentioned the word adulting. What are some of the other speech features and you know points of interest like that that we? Except now, but they were once bad English. Are there some more examples that people would maybe be able to grab onto?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think people would be surprised at how many things that they take to be good English today were actually bad English in a previous period, and how many things that were considered fine English two, 300 years ago are bad today. So one great example that I think everybody can relate to is progressives. How many people don't use a progressive form in their daily life? I'm walking, I'm talking, I'm eating Oreos, which is my personal favorite right after I'm drinking a glass of wine. (laughs) All of those things are the ing endings that we put, that's a participle that we put on our verbs to basically obligatorily note something is a continuous or habitual action. In linguistics, we call it a durative meaning, which is a fancy way of saying by using that progressive, it's automatic that someone takes it to be a continuous action. Well, people don't realize that it's only been an obligatory part of our language for about 100 years. And in fact, using progressives in previous years, I mean, we've had progressives in some sense, very rare, but since Old English, but they have been very uncommon and not obligatory. And they were considered vulgar, careless, and only colloquial English. And it was actually not until the 19th century that it was allowed as sort of a more upscale and learned form that he would actually put in writing. He would never have written a progressive before that. It was considered uncouth and vulgar. And even more interesting, passive progressive, something like the house was being built, you would have actually said in the 19th century, the house was building. And that would have been the correct form. Another one that we might all recognize is when we're talking about future tense, when you say, I... I'm going to do something in the future. You say, I will, or even more likely, I'm going to. And both of those a hundred years ago would not have been the appropriate choice. It would have been, I shall do something. So every day we use things that were considered uncouth or vulgar or careless, and we don't notice it. Another really fun example is something that Noah Webster called people out on in American speech, which is the deletion of the H before words like white, whip, and wine, which we say white, whip, and wine today, but it would have been white, whip, and whine (laughs) back in Noah Webster's day. And he called it lazy and careless speech. So these are great examples of what we think of as good English today being bad English at a previous period.
1: Now, obviously, there's a timeline from when it was bad English and now we don't even think about it. and In fact, most people aren't even aware of the history that you just explained. You know, how does that change take place where it goes from being bad English and moving forward and then spreading and becoming acceptable and then commonplace to the point where, again, people don't even realize it used to be a complete no-no.
0: Right, well, and that's actually a pretty complex answer because there are a lot of different factors that go into it. But I think one thing that's crucial is to say, You know, bad English is a pejorative term we put on it. It's sort of widely socially accepted English is really what it is. There's no such thing as bad English in those senses because it is functioning in its communicative role, which is the goal of language. What it is is dispreferred in certain social circles, usually the ones that have power and prestige. So I think it was never bad English. It was always dispreferred English, if we're going to be really careful about how we choose to describe it. But what's really interesting, if we look at how language change happens over time, we find that it happens usually slowly within certain generations, and it's usually led by the same types of people over time, which is what's really interesting about the history of language change. Over and over, we find these recurrent patterns in nature and language. And usually when we get recurrent patterns, it makes sense to ask why and who. And the recurrent movers and shakers of language are not surprisingly the young, But more specifically, young women and the lower classes. Almost all the things we think of as good English today started among the lower classes as underlying linguistic pressures that get picked up because they get associated with some desirable social meaning of some sort. And this isn't always prestige. A lot of times we say things, we talk in certain ways for other types of more covert prestige. So that means not just because we want to sound highfalutin and smart, but we want to seem cool, hip, edgy, gangster, street, whatever it is, friendly, kind, conscientious. All of those things are part of what we represent through language. So when we pick up on a feature that's associated with a certain group of speakers that embody a quality that we find appealing, then unconsciously we might adopt that feature in our own speech because it's an underlying tendency that language always has. And then when we start using it, And more people start to identify with that quality. It just spreads like wildfire. But usually this happens over generations because one group will have it as a low-lying tendency in their speech, and that'll happen for a number of years. And then another group sort of slowly starts to recognize it as it takes on some social meaning because it's been used for a while in that group. Whatever that social meaning, if it's attractive to others, they'll start picking it up in their speech. And it's usually young women who are the fashionistas. So they're the style leaders and they notice those things first unconsciously. Right. This is not with agency. It's sort of subconscious. They pick it up and then they pass it along to young men when they have children most often. So young kids often use The female caregiver as the early model of language. Now that changes when they hit school. But so changes that had happened in a young woman's speech will then be passed on to the next generation. And then they age into it and they pass it on to their kids. So can you see how it's decades of slow incremental change? And then finally, five, six decades later, it's something everybody says. And because we've all said it all the time, we don't notice it anymore.
1: And we're not necessarily talking about like, <laughs> I used like, that's great. Um, we're not <laughs> ne- <laughs> I wasn't even trying to. We're not talking specifically about slang per se in that example that you were just talking about. We're not talking about like, I'm thinking of a specific word that I had never heard for a very long time. And then because my kids were watching a lot of memes, and you may not have ever heard this word, but it's the word yeet, y e e t. You're nodding your head. I think you're familiar. So
0: it means like to throw, I believe.
1: Yeah. Essentially, it's an exclamation of it's almost as if I pick a thing up and then I throw it and I say the word throw, but I substitute it. It's almost like comic books, actually, where, you know, bang, pow, boom, you know, the Batman stuff from the 1960s or whatever. But it's like yeet. And as soon as my kids started using that, and again, it's been around five years now, it's now more common than ever. Now, I'm not saying that that word is going to become a common like stick around forever word. It's probably got a shelf life, maybe. But there are a lot of those types of terms that are not necessarily going to make it into the you know permanent lexicon, but they're temporary. They're slang. They're figuring out whether they stick to the wall or not, I guess is what I'm saying. You're talking about longer, bigger overall changes.
0: Absolutely. Most vocabulary words that are associated with sort of slang or youth culture are part of the tendency of youth to try to separate themselves out from adult culture. And for that reason, those words don't tend to have a lot of longevity because once they start to spread to adults, then they're not cool anymore. Right. So if you start going home and saying yeet all over the house every time you throw your kids socks to them, they're going to be like, oh, my God, my dad's using that. I'm totally getting away from that.
1: And that's totally happened. That's totally happened in my house. I started using it, you know, yeah. And I use the word dude, you know, just to call it out. I've used the word dude, but dude was one that I think has stuck in a way. It stuck because, I mean, I'm in my mid forties now and I still am like, I will say to my son, dude, it's like, hey, yo, well, yo, I don't use, but that was used a lot when I was young. See, there's an example. That one went away. Dude stuck. I don't know why.
0: You know, it's interesting. Dude actually has a very long history. And I have a whole chapter on it in the book because it's so fascinating and I think incredibly unexpected. It will shock people, I think, when they see the history of dude. But dude is a vocabulary word, though, that has started to take on much more social significance and cultural meaning and therefore really became appropriate for a much larger Swath of culture rather than just young people. And that's why it's had such longevity. So sometimes words become more than just individual words and they they start to function as a variety of things. And dude actually is many things. It's a greeting, it's a sign-off, it's a marker of non-confrontation, which is exactly the illustration you gave when you say dude to your son, which means, hey, I love you, but. So a lot of times it's used, for example, among college students when someone hasn't done the laundry. Dude, it's your turn. And it sort of mitigates disagreement among equals. And it's a really big solidarity marker. So it's gotten to be used in many more functions than simply as an individual word. And that's when we see longevity, because those meanings and those social uses extend to many more people than the originating group. But Here's something that will knock the socks off of anybody who has ever used dude is dude has been around since the late 1800s, probably before that. But that's when we really see it start to be used. And actually in the 1880s, calling someone a dude would have gotten you challenged to a duel or sued for defamation. As we see many New York Times articles at the time commenting on, it was ridicule. It was a mockery. It was an insult. You did not call someone a dude back in that day because dude met an effeminate dandy with over concern for how they looked and their dress. And it was really strongly tied to the aesthetics movement of the time and the superficiality of people that only existed with, as one newspaper article put it at the time, no recompense for their existence to the world. Wow. And if you called someone a dude... It was basically calling them out of a sort of, especially men. only only called men dudes at the time, as being non-conforming with expectations for what masculinity entailed at the time. And it was driven by this unease at the late 19th century, 20th century turn of the century with different norms for women and men. So the sanctity of the family was under threat from women's suffrage, from these changing roles of men and women, from the demand of women for equal rights that had started at the time, but it was also really under threats for the definitions of masculinity because a lot of young men were shirking the norms of adult male sort of traditional family life, as well as greater visibility of homosexuality. And so calling someone a dude was essentially accusing them of violating these norms of what it meant to be a man at the time. Now, fast forward to contemporary times. And what's really interesting is dude is now a very positive thing. We call each other dude all the time. It's a marker of cool solidarity, which is what one researcher termed it as. But it is also really deeply tied to norms of masculinity and what cultural models we have for what a cool male constitutes. So it's really fascinating how the meaning has changed. It's 160 from where it started. But the reason dude has stayed around is because it has revolved around norms for masculine behavior and cultural models for what it means to be a male since its inception in the 1800s.
1: Yeah. See, and prior to the book, I would have said the word dude came out of California surfer culture in like the 60s, 70s, 80s, somewhere in there. Right? Right. Right. That's at least what television and movies would make us believe at that time.
0: That's where it got propagated. So it's surfer and druggie culture that really propagated, dude, that's when it became part of this mainstream imagination of what California life was like. And that dude got that really cool sort of surfer dude sort of idea and sensibility with it. But actually, what made dudes cool and what made surfer and druggie subculture adopt it was not, you know, cowabunga. (laughs) It was instead actually that dude was a term picked up and it's pejorative meaning dismantled by a zoot suit culture. African-American zoot suiters and Mexican-American pachuchos during the zoot suit era started to call each other dude as a way to reference their intense style and fashion and also the solidarity in the face of really strong cultural prejudice and racism. And if you were a dude, you were someone that stood up. And adopted a style that was basically flicking off the rest of American white culture that was telling you you weren't valuable and you shouldn't have your own thing. And that's when dude rose as a cool phrase. And that's what got picked up by the surfers and the druggie subculture because of the nonconformist cool associations it developed during the jazz era.
1: Wow. It's so cool to me to, one, be enlightened or be, you know, aware of the added history and the context of not just one, but two different shifts, Well, three really, when it comes to, you know, originally how dude was used, then the Zoot Suit era, as you were talking about, and then the Surfer era, and then on into now. So really four kind of eras.
0: Absolutely. And women can be dudes now because we've gotten away from dude being just calling out a man to dude being calling out a relationship. So what dude signals now is we have a friendship. We're on equal footing and I'm going to either tell you something I don't like but not threaten our relationship or I'm going to sort of just express the solidarity and friendship by using the term dude. And so as it's gotten away from being so strongly gendered and it's more about the relationship, the sort of solidarity, then it gets picked up by other groups for whom solidarity is a quality they want to replicate. So this is sort of a beautiful example of how language changes over time because these nuances of meaning start to become more important than the original meaning that word had.
1: Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search You know, it just occurred to me, and I've always thought that this was fascinating, the story about the song Yankee Doodle Dandy. I'm sure you're familiar with that and and how it's kind of, no, you know what? If you're going to call us that, fine, we're going to accept it. We're going to take it. And, And now, you know, you've got New York Yankees, like Yankees and Yanks and all that. It was like, that's not originally how it was. It was originally, what was the song? What, Yankee Doodle Dandy? Gosh, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. Yankee Doodle went to town riding on a pony, stuck a feather in his hat and called it Macaroni. Right. That's what we we learned that as kids. And that's like the British making fun of the new Americans or the colonials and calling them that. But then they start singing that song as like almost an anthem. They adopt it and call themselves that. To say Hep, you want to make fun of us, Psh, it bounces off me, <laughs> you know.
0: Right, absolutely. I love the story of Yankee Doodle Dandy because that's actually where the word dude comes from. It's a fusing of doodle and dandy. It became duty, and then it became dude, and that is actually the origin of the dude. Yeah. But what's really funny is the idea of macaroni. Have you ever wondered why he called it macaroni? It's a bizarre thing, yeah. and we, you know, we learned that song. I remember singing it as a kid, and I, I remember thinking, well, that's funny. You know, he likes a piece of pasta on his head. You know, I just I could never figure it out. But the actual reason why we sing that song, what macaroni means is it actually is sort of a reference to early dudes. In the 17th century, there were a group of British men, young British men with European airs, that loved Italy and particularly loved macaroni. That was they were famed for loving that dish and they dressed with sort of a very particular kind of European style, very tight vest, very tight pants, big hat with feathers and boots. And that they were called, in the 17th century, Macaronis. And so what the British were making fun of Americans was them trying to uh, aspire to that level of dandyism that was personified by the Macaronis in Britain. And then Americans threw it back at them and were like, fine, call us those, right? We're going to sing it back to you. And that's when Yankee Doodle Dandy became the American anthem that it is today.
1: I love it. I love all of it. It's so fascinating to me. So we've talked a lot about dude. Let's talk maybe about like or literally take your pick, because I think those are the other two key words in the title.
0: Yes. Well, and you know, things that I get called out on a lot in terms of young people's speech and why I should talk about them is like and literally both of them. But I would say the number one pet peeve that I hear about is like and in fact, that is the original chapter of the book. So when I would start to think about these things that people brought to my attention. And also that students, I I start every semester in my class asking students to bring me things about language that they notice. I don't say bad things. I just say, tell me what you notice about language. Every single semester, like is the most popular noticed feature of language and not usually in a good way. And the funny thing is my students usually bring it to my attention by using like in a sentence without even realizing they'll say something like, I hate like when people use like in sentence." And that, of course, everybody is dying laughing because they just exemplified the very thing they're talking about. So I think like is important because it's so hated. And I think it's really gotten a bad rap because it's so useful. We don't realize that like is not random and chaotic. It's incredibly purposeful and powerful. And it, it's come into our language the same way these other changes did. So it's naturally evolved over centuries. Like didn't start with the belly Girls. It's hundreds of years old. And it started in the 1700s when we first find some ex- evidence of like used as a discourse marker. And it actually has several functions, and young people are tuned into those functions, but people over 40 don't tend to be. And that's why they hate it so much. And the fact that there are several functions for it makes it seem like they use it all the time when actually they're using it for different purposes.
1: Interesting. Okay. Obviously, this goes beyond just specific words, it also goes to Well, and like is one of them, like is similar to, you know, to dive into podcasting for a minute here, the ums and the uhs, because there are different people, there are different camps there where it's like, no, go into the software. There's a certain piece of software out there for podcast editors where they can literally, and I just use literally where they can go into the software and select, remove, and it's called this, it's remove filler words. And my thought is, is You don't want to remove any of them, actually. If you can help it, you remove none of them. I'm going to give an example. This is not how I normally talk because I've gotten used to it. But if I were to say, um, you know, I don't know if um, I can maybe make that um, happen. And, you know, um, and um is like every like it's like grammatically, visually, but in an auditory way, adding too many commas to the sentence as I'm writing it. That's kind of the way I'm taking it. But And see, I paused and I almost said um there. (laughs) But I think there's room for it. You make a case for um in the book.
0: I do. And you know, um is one of those other features that people really, really don't like. And I think both like and um are cases where they have linguistic benefits but they don't necessarily have social benefits. And that's what leads to this clash of um, they're useful and they arose in language to fill a purpose, but we don't like them. And so we, we tend to want to eradicate them rather than recognize they have that purpose. Um, and, so it's, and so I put a, I'm in there just for effect. What's really interesting about those programs, if you did all of them, if you removed all filler words and all ums and uhs, which are filled pauses, not filler words, because there's a slight difference in how they seem to cognitively be um, treated, but filler words are things like like, you know, those things that people also tend to comment on, and then ums and uhs, you get a much less natural conversation. Part of the purpose of those is that they sort of are the social greasing of our conversations. They allow us to connect They allow us to let other people know what our own thought processing is and our own subjectivity. And why do we not want to understand that from people? I think that's sort of where we get off course. That said, there are cases, and I think you just illustrated that, where people use so many of something. And that's just a difference between people that are over users of a feature and any feature could do that. If I said ice cream 20 times in my talk, that would just be too many too many ice creams. So that's where we get mad at the feature for a specific style that a user has. So, you know, sometimes people have a linguistic style where they're heavy ummers, some people have a linguistic style where they're called um avoiders. And those are, of course, the clinical terms. <laughs> and we just tend to notice those that are heavy ummers, especially when it distracts from what they're saying because they use it so often. So I'm not saying people should use them to that kind of extreme. And of course, when anybody has a style that's distracting, we want to make sure that we try to help them have a better style for their own presentation. But Generally speaking, it's not the feature that's the problem. It's perhaps the rate of use. And if you remove them all, it just doesn't feel like a natural conversation, which is why sometimes people have actually put those into computer programs that interact with people like Alexa and those virtual assistants. There are some that have programmed in some filled pauses and some filler words to make it feel more natural.
1: Yeah, it's it's more human that way. I feel like I've done a lot of work to remove the use of the word, um, in my everyday conversation, whether it's, you know, professional and recorded, or if it's just human to human in a, you know, off the record conversation, but they still sneak in and that's okay because it's natural. It's a, um, see, I just did it. I wasn't trying to, but it it, it happened and I wasn't trying to make a point with it. It's just the rate, like, I would say if, if I was at like a, uh, sorry, gosh, I'm just, really jumping around and touching all of them right now Um, because I'm in my head about it.
0: Yes, that's that's what happens. My students, we start laughing because once one person mentions a feature in class, the rest of the class Uh, spends the whole class time noticing every time someone says that feature from then on forward because you just it it highlights it in your cognitive perception so yeah then you just can't get away from it
1: yeah the recency bias there where it's like i just saw that car and now i'm seeing it everywhere it's now that word i'm aware of it every time but i guess what i'm trying to say is that can be a good thing if you're trying to polish your writing and your speaking but not being, you know, adverse to oh I'm never going to use it. If I and if I ever hear anybody else use it, they're a horrible speaker. They're a horrible writer. That we we you know, we we get out a red stamp and, you know, slam it down and say bad English on whatever they did. So,
0: <laughs> absolutely. And I would challenge you and your listeners to think about their conversations in everyday life. How many times do you have conversations with your friends, your family, your neighbors, Where I'm and I get in the way or where you, you know, are like getting away. In fact, you probably don't notice it. What we tend to notice is people in professional speaking engagements or public speaking contexts or being interviewed um, as a celebrity. And those are different contexts than normal everyday life for both those speakers and for everybody else that's in those kinds of situations. We tend to see increases in the rates of filled pauses when people are in context where they're talking about more abstract, more difficult or less common things. So when they're searching for words out of a neighborhood of words that might be usable. So were you um, just a few minutes ago? It was because you were searching for the right word, which means you didn't have something at the ready. It wasn't a familiar word, a highly used word. You had a whole neighborhood of words that might have some sort of meaning that you were intending to to give out, but you were choosing among them. So whenever we have to do more neural network, network activation, more cognitive processing, that is where I'm and i come. They are signals of cognitive processing. So I think in many ways, the context that we tend to observe those in are ones where we're asking those speakers to do more. They're doing heavier cognitive listing, whether that's giving a speech on TV or it's being in a business meeting where they're having to talk about some, you know, really field specific information using field specific language that they don't use every day in a context where they're trying to structure their sentences to be a little fancier, longer because longer syntactic structures also tend to encourage um and uh. So that's why you um are uh often at the beginning of the sentence, because your brain is actually going through the syntactic structure it's building. So these are actually pretty good things we're signaling. We're doing hard work. Um, and so and I just did an um there for you. So I think what we need to do is recognize that they pop in our speech, not in everyday context. So if you um in professional circles, you probably don't um at home. But those are exactly the contexts we also tend to be harder on speakers for. So we need to cut people a little bit of slack that they're only doing what their brain is sort of uh, processing and thinking about. And that's just a signal that they're doing hard work.
1: So one of the other things that I've heard a lot in context of speaking and and especially podcasting. I think that's where I've really heard it the most is also this and it tends to be um it tends to be a gender leaning thing and it's vocal fry. And you talk about this in the book as well. Some people, if they're lucky, have never even heard of this term and heard heard people debating it because honestly I think it's kind of a I don't know. I think it's kind of an annoying topic, but I want to bring it up because it's yet another facet of communication and language that you address in the book.
0: Absolutely. Vocal Fry, if anybody doesn't know that term, I imagine you've probably heard it. You just may not know the, the term. And essentially, it's sort of a voice quality that is a little bit scratchy, a little bit um, popping. That happens when a voice goes into a lower register, a lower pitch register, and it's caused by the vocal folds slowing down and vibrating more irregularly. So they create this kind of low popping noise. And I'll give an example. When you get to the end of a phrase, it often happens like this. So you can hear that kind of creaky little affectation in my voice. Now, I'm overdoing it there. And normally it comes in as a linguistic style for some speakers as they get to the end of a sentence, the end of a thought. So it's sort of a socio-stylistic marker of getting to a certain part in your sentence. Now, what's really interesting about vocal fry is it's been around for a long time. And it's not a pathology, even though it's been treated that way. There are languages that actually use vocal fry for linguistic meaning. So clearly there's nothing wrong with your vocal folds being able to do that. It's simply a, we call it a phonation type. It's sort of like creaky voice is is also another name for it. It's sort of like um, when you do a really breathy voice to put on a certain style of being sort of sexy and sultry. So when, you know, you do your Marilyn Monroe voice like this, that's also something related to the vocal fold. So it's nothing wrong with doing things with your vocal folds. It's just that particular one tends to be disliked because it's associated with Young women, as you mentioned, it seems to be very gendered. What's interesting, though, is vocal fry actually was first studied as a marker of hypermasculine speech in British English in the 1980s, and that study found that British men in certain regions tended to vocal fry at a rate three to 10 times more than women in those studies. So it was really associated with men. But no one ever called British men out for being vacuous, annoying, awful, having a pathology, having an epidemic, which is exactly how we hear vocal fry described in American speech. And that's because it seems to have arisen as a popular voice style for younger women in the early 2000s. And we find in particular that it was most common in news broadcast among women newscasters. So early studies done found that when they compared the news reports of women broadcasters to male broadcasters, women tended to fry about twice as much more than the men did. When they compared those same speakers, a little later study, this was a slightly different study, they used male newscasters and female newscasters. And they also took regular non-professional voice people from the community. So people that didn't work in news and didn't use their voice for their living. And they found that those men and women that didn't use their voice professionally didn't have a different rate of vocal fry. But the men and women that did use their voice professionally did. So again, the women were using it more in that circles, which suggests there's a reason they've adopted that style. And if you look at the literature on preferences for voice pitch, particularly in broadcast settings, you see there is a strong bias towards low pitches. So low-pitched men in broadcasting have always been valorized. And in the fact, women have constantly been criticized for high-pitched voices in those settings. Not only that, but generally in professional circles elsewhere, we also find low pitches garner more beneficial ratings on professional, authoritative, and dominant scales. So why would women be adopting a lower-pitched excursion in their speech because we put a lot of social pressure on them to come up with a more professional sounding voice, which means one that has lower registers. Vocal fry, though, is a higher pitch. We notice it more when it's a higher pitch than dipping down into a low register, which is why we notice it more on women, because most of the studies have suggested that men in America, young men as well, fry too. They do fry slightly less than women, But it's not like they don't do it. It's just that when you're already at a low pitch and you go to a lower pitch, it's not as noticeable as women who do that. So I think it's gotten a bad rap because it's really an opportunity for women to try to get these better ratings that we get on authority, competence and dominance scales for professional work that then we criticize them for when they're doing exactly what we're putting pressure on them to do. The other thing is young women don't hear it as negative. Young men don't either. When we ask them to rate people with vocal fry, they say it's urban, it's professional, it's relaxed, it's intimate. So all good qualities, whereas older speakers tend not to like it.
1: Interesting. Yeah, see, and calling it out that way, giving that context really helps to be able to frame it correctly. And honestly, I don't know. Again, until I heard the term, I thought, Okay, I don't even know what this is. Then I heard it, and then I was even given audible examples of it. And I thought, okay, I still can't tell what's going on. Like, I could, it didn't even register. So I like, I felt like, oh, this is just something people are hung up on that, you know. And I think probably when I first heard it, this is probably five, seven years ago when it was first kind of thrown around at first, and then again, maybe four years ago, something like that. Pre-pandemic, I think. Anyway, especially in the realm of podcasters, because a lot of people were suddenly recording a lot more and a lot of people were listening a lot more. And so it was brought to the forefront. Again, it was nitpicky, I felt. So anyway, that's my take.
0: I agree with you. Yes, I I, I agree. And I do think that is part of it, this increase in um, people in podcasting in broadcasting. It's just made it more visible. It probably hasn't actually increased it. In fact, if you look at the research literature, we don't have great evidence that it is, in fact, increasing. We do see that American women do tend to do it more than American men, but that seems to be at all age groups. We haven't seen a lot of evidence, and that hasn't been super well studied, but studies that have looked at different age groups have not found a preponderance of vocal fry among only young women.
1: All of this, all that we've talked about is great. I love adding context. I love giving history and background and and I love that you're doing that. I'm curious though, what exactly is your intent with the book? You know, audiences at large, readers at large, what do you hope that they walk away from this book? Doing changing just awareness or more than that?
0: Well, I think there's more than that. And, you know, I think it, it's a kind of multi-layered hope that I have for the book. One is I wanted to answer the questions that seem to be really compelling questions to a lot of people, so much so that I got them over and over and over again. You know, obviously, people want to understand these speech features because they find them uncomfortable. They find them something they dislike. They find them as bad English. And people seem to realize there's more to the story, but they don't know what that story is. So I want to provide the context, the background, the history and the science, because there's a lot of research in the book about what these features do so that people can be better at embracing features in their own speech that they have been told are bad, which a lot of young speakers have been told. They can also learn when they're not users of these speech features, why people use them, which might make them more empathetic. But on a more um, sort of, I think, applied level, a more day to day level, what I think we can do is use our knowledge that we've gained through understanding the history of not just these features, but of language evolution and language change more generally to try not to dismiss people because of the way they talk. It may not be the way you choose to talk. You may not like it, and that's okay. I'm not telling people you need to like the way other people speak, but you do need to be accepting of the fact of their right to do so. And it's not meaningless and it's not bad. And when you call it that, you're hurting people. It's a matter of equity and accuracy because we also find an imbalance in the people we accuse of these types of bad Englishes. We find that they tend to be young, they tend to be female. And even more often, they tend to be of a different class or ethnicity than we are. So we're not understanding that when we are biased or prejudiced against certain types of speech because they're socially dispreferred, what we're doing is actually enacting bias and prejudice against a certain type of speaker. That's simply not fair. It comes from history. It comes from society and it comes from a purpose and needs in language and natural evolutionary processes in language overall. So I think my biggest hope is that people will be more aware of that and be able to enact that in their daily lives and their interactions and their businesses.
1: Yeah, it's a great new lens to look at, not just the language that's being used by others, but those people themselves. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, as this is releasing, the book is out now. I want people to go check it out. I really enjoyed it, and I think you will too, especially if you've made it this far in this conversation. Valerie, I would love to direct people to where they can learn more about the work that you're doing, learn more about the book if they want to dive deeper, anything like that.
0: Absolutely. Well, obviously, you can get the books wherever books are sold, but you can also find out more about me and my research and also some of the other stuff I've written and the research I'm doing on my website, which is just com.
1: Perfect. And I will make sure that is linked up in the show notes for everybody to be able to find really quickly and easily. Valerie, it's been awesome talking with you. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for sharing and putting up with all my ums.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I loved your ums. It was awesome. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you loved listening in on this conversation with Valerie as much as I did having it. I think you can tell I definitely love geeking out over words, something I definitely need to do more often, sometimes on this show, sometimes not. But I had a lot of fun and I hope you did too. Definitely a lot more in the book. You can find the link to that in the show notes at list.com. And if you found this enjoyable, fascinating, helpful, think of somebody else that you can share it with. Share it with that person that you know as you were listening to this. Oh my gosh, I know they would love to hear this and share it over to them. Do me that favor, do Valerie that favor, do that friend that favor and let them know about this conversation thank you so much for sharing. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next episode.